0: With questions about birthright citizenship's future in Trump's America, along with conversations about border walls being put up also again in Trump's America, there are many scholars reaching back to Antebellum America to help today's citizens be better historically grounded in these conversations. Scholars like University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, English scholar Dr. Derek R. Spires is one of those scholars weighing in. Today on New Books in African American Studies, your host... Me, Adam McNeil, will help guide the conversation with Dr. Spires about his brand new book published by our friends at the University of Pennsylvania Press entitled The Practice of Citizenship, Black Politics and Print Culture in the Early United States. Welcome to the show, Dr. Spires. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Very good, and uh this is
0: a you know I didn't tell you this in the in the beginning, but you know this is this is a new kind of intro that that I'm uh, starting out, so you're kind of like a a l- little bit of a guinea pig here today, so glad uh glad everything went uh went on um as planned very good so uh thank you for that but uh before we get too far, can you talk to us about um how you came to this project?
1: Part of it was just working through the archives and part of it was kind of wanting to ask basic questions. So when I was reading, particularly the state conventions, but also those pieces collected in Dorothy Porter's Early Negro Writings and elsewhere, I kept coming across the phrase fellow citizens, citizen, 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 kept popping up all over the place. And I asked a really basic question. What did they mean by calling themselves? By they, I mean... um, early African-Americans mean when they called themselves citizens, because surely they were not actually citizens. And so I did some basic research, first figuring out what citizenship was before the 14th Amendment, which became a rabbit hole of conflicting state laws, um, voting rights being unequally distributed, the lack of citizenship being defined in the Constitution. So that was one hand. And then on the other hand, I began to realize that when folks like Frederick Douglass or the delegates at your given state or national convention call themselves citizens, they were legit thinking of themselves as citizens. So what does that then mean for Black folk before the 14th Amendment in the absence of a kind of national consensus on what citizenship means? To call themselves citizens, and with folks like Garnett extending it, what does it mean for them to to think of even enslaved folk as citizens? So that's how it started.
0: Awesome, and and you sp- you're speaking about these conventions. Can you be specific? Are what kind of conventions are we talking about here in, in this particular early American period?
1: Uh, good question. So, um, one. Shout out to the Colored Conventions Project, which is bringing these conventions to uh, accessible attention. But from the 1830s forward, Black collectives on the national and state levels held conventions of colored citizens or national conventions um, beginning in 1833 in Philadelphia and working through Reconstruction. And so my own focus was on the state conventions held in New York, Ohio, and Philadelphia, beginning in the 1840s. Um, Often when folks talk about the state and national conventions, until recently, they emphasize the anti-slavery arguments going on in there. Um, But they also tended to look at them as places where Black politics, Black political um, collectives fractured. So you get the conversation around divisions between Henry Highland Garnett and Frederick Douglass, for instance, centering around the 1843 National Convention. But when you focus more broadly on these conventions, particularly in the state conventions, you see a really cohesive, um, democratically, deliberatively structured collective, right? And so um, looking at these conventions allow us to see Black collectives doing political work, interfacing with states, sending petitions and other documents to state houses, sending representatives to state houses um, in really interesting ways.
0: And, you know, you know, you shouted out, you know, uh, the Color Conventions Project. You know, that's where I work with uh, Dr. Foreman um, and the other folks with the Color Conventions team. Um, shout out Denise. Shout out Brandy. Shout out Anna and, and, and all the crew. Um too many to mention at the, you know, for, for this brief little interview. So, um, shout out to everybody. Um, and so, so before we go to the antebellum era specifically, right? Like, you know, 19th century, um, you, 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 start before that. Um, and, and one of the most fascinating aspects of your book, you talk about this notion of neighborliness and, 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 and it's something that, um, I think a lot of folks uh, uh, as far as thematically, right? I think that theme of of neighborliness that you speak about is is something important. So can you please speak to the audience about um, what you mean by neighborliness and how it functions in your text?
1: Great question. Uh, So neighborliness, I think of it as the ethical core of all the other practices. I outline in the book. Um, Other practices include political participation, um, economic citizenship, critique, revolution. But if there's not a sense of uh, collectivity of doing for the other what you would have others do for you, then the other pieces fall apart. Um, And I talk about neighborliness through Absalom Jones and Richard Allen's 1794 Yellow Fever narrative. And I think Jones and Allen, who are both ministers, um, uh, founders of the Free African Society, Free African Church, which becomes later the AME Church, um, were really thinking with their contemporaries about what is it that keeps a society, a community together? What is it that keeps people sort of going in the direction of the common good? And in that narrative, even though they don't mention the parable of the Good Samaritan, sort of one of the sources for um, neighborliness, they structure that narrative in a way that mirrors the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Told in multiple places in the New Testament, it's about um, a man who's injured on the side of the road. The people, the community expects to help him pass him by until a Samaritan who's sort of... um, a person who represents the abject, like sees this person in need of help and reaches out, right? And within the parable, um, Jesus says that this moment is the core of what the law should do. It's not just a matter of personal morality. I'm a good person or I have pity on someone. It's a matter of principle. And it's the principle that underwrites the law. I show myself to be a good neighbor because I see someone else and I do the neighborly thing. Um, not out of sympathy, not out of feeling, sometimes despite the way I'm feeling, but because I know it's the principle I should follow. And Jones and Allen follow that sort of principle and they their examples are individuals, but they also scale it up from the individual instance of someone doing the neighborly thing to their institutions, the Free African Church, doing the neighborly thing in this moment of crisis. And then they scale it up even more, um, I argue, to suggest that the United States um, as a state has a neighborly responsibility to emancipate enslaved people and to emancipate them under conditions of neighborliness so that the focus isn't if we emancipate them, then we have to ship them back to Africa, as Jefferson would say, or we have to um, compensate um, they're enslavers which is also always a bizarre sort of form of logic but rather um, emancipate them with the idea that they are citizens like already
0: that's an interesting uh, connection too as well because i've you know i'm very much aligned with like the you know thinking about you know thinking about you know what you're talking about as far as jefferson um you know like dude what, do you, what are you talking about man you, you know you, on one end you're trying to you know, emancipate, but, you know, then you're, you know, trying to send us out because you think that we're going to be too mad uh, to be able to uh, function in this society.
1: Uh, you know, still a little, little you're right. And refusing and refusing justified anger. Right. On the one hand, he argues that um, Africans don't have the finer sensibilities that Europeans do. And at the same time, he says well they'd be justifiably angry Mm -hmm.
0: and and also that's a form of you know showing the inhumanity of black folks for for someone like jefferson that they are not allowed to be justifiably angry right on one end what you're talking about is that he being jefferson is um he 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 diagnoses that you know the the anger and the problem is there but his remedy is much different than what you know Allen and Jones and other uh, African Americans uh uh contemporaries right because we I think we forget like Allen and Jones are contemporaries of Jefferson in the time in the frame of like they're you know active as he is rising to become president
1: Richard Allen lived down the street from Alexander really? Hamilton Yeah he lived down the street from Hamilton it's not it it's not an abstract thing they likely passed each now other imagine if streets. that was
0: included in hamilton what would hamilton right? like, like like what would hamilton be like if the black characters or like the black adjacent characters were folks like jones or were people like allen rather um what what would you know what would the premise of lin uh, manuel miranda's um uh, awesome you know Uh, Performance and an awesome play, right? What would that be? um, You know, what would that do? Um, And which is an interesting question, don't you think?
1: Uh, One of the things I taught a course on Hamilton last semester, and one of the things we talked about was that the um, race conscious casting did good work in terms of visible representation, but it also created a bit of a narrative problem. So, say Hamilton does include um Richard Allen or does include Benjamin Banneker, who wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson critiquing what he says in Notes on the State of Virginia and then published that letter in Philadelphia. How then would you mark their blackness if Jefferson, Washington, and others are played by black mm-hmm. folk? Right? It's it's a kind of paradoxical erasure of blackness, even as it puts black people on the stage.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and something that you brought up just then was that Banneker publishes letter to Jefferson. And so that publishing goes into my next question of what does, you know, how do African Americans, how how do black folks in this period, how do they, how do they meld their politics within black print, you know, black print culture, uh, you know, uh, and its emergence, right? How does that, how does that happen?
1: Well, oh, the short answer would be something like the same way it happens for everybody mm-hmm. else. Um, a public figure does a thing that upsets you in early America as now. And what do you do? You write about it and you publish it um, in a very public way. And so in that sense, Black print culture functionally does work similar to the larger American culture. The difference is At this larger American print culture, at every step, attempts to deny the validity of their arguments, attempts to deny their right to be in the space. Right, and Banneker is an interesting and fun case about this because he read Jefferson, he wrote to Jefferson when Jefferson was Secretary of State. So it's a letter to Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, and he quotes from the Declaration of Independence. He uses the neighborly. This Principle essentially saying, if you, um, as a revolutionary, thought of yourself as politically enslaved, wrote these words, we hold these truths to be self evident, etc., cetera, etc., um, surely you'd want the same for the rest of us, right? Um, kind of rhetorical question. Jefferson writes back to Banneker, sort of saying, Yeah, I wish I'm looking forward to the day we could do something about this. And this kind of Bland royal, we, yeah, gee, that's a problem. Wish we could do something, kind of way. Banneker then publishes his letter to Jefferson along with Jefferson's response. And not only that, he also publishes it in his almanac for that year. And part of what I'm thinking is that Banneker had a legitimate gripe with Jefferson, but he also used this moment with Jefferson as a springboard for publishing his almanac. So it's kind of a um a double barrel. And approach. and I
0: think, you know, um Banneker is such a such an interesting figure. Um I, I was looking over the uh the what's it the Society for the Shear, you know, the study of early American Republic. Um I was going through their um program for, for this uh, upcoming summer in Cambridge Mass and I if I'm not mistaken there's somebody I, w- I wish I had it handy, but there's somebody who's actually writing about you know, like anti, there's like a panel called like anti-slavery and bill kind of like looking at, you know, what are all to be African-American? Does that necessarily make you an abolitionist if you're free at this time? And, and that's kind of like the tinge of the, the titles I'm looking at. And one of them is actually on Benjamin Banneker, uh, uh, speaking to that particular point. And it really made, it was just a really interesting, um, tidbit because thinking about like how important, Benjamin Banneker is, and I think you saw on Twitter, um, I I posted something about like there was an episode of Martin um, where where Tommy thinks that he got like you know a Benjamin Banneker clock, but now it was a Benjamin Fanneker, and it was like you know it was supposed to be worth like all this, money. it's one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> yeah, and um, it I only I bring that up because yeah, you know even in this you know late 20th century moment, like people know how important Benjamin Banneker is just off of like name recognition but you know i don't think as many people would know as like how how in-depth of an intellectual and as a scientist he was and so that i think that that was a bit of uh about your text that made me you know sign that signposted that to me to go back and look at banneker and early african americans going at jefferson
1: yeah and to your point about so just because I guess to extrapolate from that, just because someone is Black doesn't mean they don't um, suffer from anti-Black tendencies or breathe the same air. Um, And this is not a knock on Banneker because he's working with the information available, but in his almanac following the 1793 yellow fever epidemic, he actually republishes one of the articles claiming that Black people are sort of inherently immune to the yellow fever even as Jones and Allen are contesting that and so they're kind of writing at the same moment but there's a kind of time lag between the information getting out there
0: no that that is true that is true and lord knows you can see that in in our culture today lord knows <laughs> lord knows um and and so with that too um going a little bit further into the antebellum era can you talk about the rise of Black, not only, you know, you talk about Black print culture, right? That has a much further uh, uh, push. But can you talk about Black publishers and, and their role in your story, too?
1: Right. It's it's interesting. Um, so, a quick aside, a friend and colleague of mine, Ben Fagan, published a book a couple of years ago, um, The Black Newspaper and Chosen Nation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think we've been on parallel tracks since grad school. So I encourage everyone to check that out because his he gives really great biographical um, and analytical sort of discussions of Black publishing. But the thing about Black print, Black activism, is that everything's connected. It's not just I'm going to advocate for X. It's I'm going to advocate for X and doing that means that I need to think about print. And doing that needs to, means that I need to think about the mode of production. Right, And so one of the early things you see in the convention movement is um, conventioneers saying, we need a press. We need our own voices. Um, our warfare lies in the field of thought. And when they say we need a press, they're not just talking about we need a newspaper. They mean we need to own the means of production um, from the AME Church's book concern, to Frederick Douglass's real deep concern with the quality of his paper, his type um, and ink, et cetera, to Thomas Hamilton, who is a part of his second or third generation, who comes of age knowing that Black newspapers exist. He is working on Black newspapers for the better part of his life. Um, And so it's it's a package deal. Um, Owning the means of production, making sure that When um, Black events are happening, there's a venue that gives an impartial account of what's happening in the space, making sure there are venues for discussion, um, like Frederick Douglass's paper, um, Anglo African magazine, and Weekly Anglo African. And then um, these activists were also concerned with, um, at least from their perspective, training. Their readers and people they thought of as their constituents in modes of debate. So we have these print spaces now, right? We have a newspaper, we have a press. How ought we to be engaging with each other in a critical way, but also in a generous and productive way? Mm-hmm.
0: And and one of the one of the actor uh, one of the actresses in in your text that to me um, embodies. Uh, much of the many of the principles that you speak about is, um, let me see. You have was it Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, right? I got that before. I, I, getting all of those in place correctly is probably one of the hardest things I've ever, you know, trying to do. Just like off the top, um, and so you know, she she she's a major function in in your text. Can you talk for for the listeners who don't know much about her? Can you tell us how important she is to, uh, tied into your text?
1: You know, I am a Harper Stan these days. (laughs) Um, She is. And the more I learn about her, the more awesome she is. And I also have to say that my understanding of Harper and my exposure to her comes directly out of the work of Frances Smith Foster, uh, whose Brighter Coming Day was my end, as well as um, Carla Peterson, Melba Boyce, Joy. um, uh, um, I'm I'm getting a little tongue-tied. Um and um that's no, no, oh, all good. Sorry. Um well Carla Peterson, um and Francis Smith Foster in particular. And um and so Harper like one, she works on multiple levels. She is a lecturer um beginning in the eighteen fifties, she's a poet um who sort of begins to rate on the national scale um, in the 1850s with her poems reflecting on Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin that were published in Frederick Douglass's paper and elsewhere. Um, she's the child of William Watkins, Sr., who himself on the school had connections to David Walker, so she's a child of someone who was himself a radical um, She advocated for suffrage rights. She wrote some of the earliest short stories by Black women. She wrote some of the earliest novels by African-Americans, Black women. Um, She did it all, right? Um, And she did it with a kind of flair, not just, well, it's not a not just, but she did it in the modes that people at all levels could get. So her poems were often in a ballad form. You could sing her poems, right? You could set some of her poems to Greensleeves and sing them. Um, But the content intellectually rich. She's engaging with um, enlightenment and romantic philosophy. She's engaging with um, sort of um, 19th century political thought. She's engaging with her contemporaries. So it's a simple form, but like a really deeply thought out intellectual work happening. Um,
0: mm-hmm. You can
1: analogize some of her work to Lemonade, right? In that way. Um, and so when I take her up in the book, I take her up in two places primarily. One in the context of state conventions where she appears in Ohio and is noted for fundraising, Um and this is a thing that happened to black women in the convention movement more broadly. they often their labor isn't recognized officially, except often in fundraising. And what she does later in life is write a sketch lampooning the fact that conventions tend not to recognize women outside of their um, fundraising work. Um, and then I take her up properly in the last chapter because I argue she develops a kind of pedagogy of revolutionary citizenship. She says that um, Black people need to teach their children through the stories of people like Margaret Garner, who in 1856 uh, famously killed her daughter rather than see her return to enslavement. Or... Um, a revolutionary who participated in a rebellion in Tennessee in 1856, who, the story goes, died rather than give up some of his co-conspirators. These are the people who need to be sung about. And she writes about this in a sketch series, Fancy Sketches, that's published in the Anglo-African Magazine in 1859. And she has a character who, after hearing these stories, says, what can I do? Right, she's very moved as we often are when we encounter something that um changes our worldview. And she has another character, Jane, who says, Well, the first thing you can do is subscribe to the Anglo African. Right? Get the knowledge, support the black print um spaces. And and, and that's really and interesting
0: then, because you know, she Harper is one of the you know, working, you know, at the University of Delaware. And taking classes from Dr. Foreman. You know, we had you on, um, you know, when Jessica and I had um you know, we presented on your book, and we had you on um, the, you know, th- shout out to you, Dr. Foreman, for 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 making that happen. Um, and uh one of the more important parts, right? You 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 know, you talk about the oh. the conventions, right? Harper went to many conventions, right? She she was a very instrumental uh, figure, you know, her and, and, uh, Miriam Shad Carey, you know, are probably two of the m- most recognizable, uh, women, you know, especially when we start talking about, you know, women's suffrage and, 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 you know, just abolitionist thought and, um, just, you know, general convention culture. Um, you know, it, you know, with that being said, did, did you utilize a lot with your research, the, the projects, uh, gi- digital archive
1: Increasingly, um, when I started, um, my first introduction to the Colored Conventions was browsing the stacks in the library and seeing these two red volumes, uh, which is Fauner and Walker's collection of the Antebellum State Conventions, um, and then seeing Howard Holman Bell's work um, collection of the Colored Conventions, but also his book on the Colored Conventions movement. And so my awareness of the color Conventions started then Um, before CCP was up and running. And the two, my research at the conventions Mm -hmm. and the CCP archives have sort of grown together. Um, And it's been great, especially on the back end of finishing the book, where before I'd have to track down newspaper articles, microfilm, used to black abolitionist papers, which is an awesome resource um, the Bell and Foner and Walker collections. Mm-hmm. By the time I'm finishing the book, I could search <laughs> the CCP archives. Um, I could reference the fantastic exhibits on there. I actually cite some of the exhibits, and I tried as much as possible when I cited conventions in the book to give both the Foner and Walker or Bell citation and the CCP citation so people could access them um, in both formats. Um, so yeah, um, I, I feel like we've grown together in a way.
0: And it's really cool to really see that because what it does is, you know, a lot of times people ask, so, so you know, people publish a book in 2018, 2019, and it's like, you know, one of the questions I typically hear people ask is, you know, do you have a digital component, you know, feature, right? Do you have something like a, 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 a tag along add on to, to the text. And I think that's a really cool thing about, you know, the color conventions project is that, you know, the question is answered online. Um, and, and, and it definitely sounds like you were able to utilize, um, you know, many of them as well. And so now that we're kind of talking, uh, more about process, um, that's a good way to pivot a little bit. Um, so as you're writing this book, you know, what, you know, what is your process like as a writer? What, what's your process like, you know, compiling and organizing? What does what is, what is that part of the writing process look like for you, Dr. Spires?
1: <laughs> it evolved over time. Um, I think one of the things I had to figure out how to do early on and continue to figure out how to do is um, a good filing system goes a long way. Um, figuring out the organizational principles that work for a particular project at a particular time with a particular technology. Um, I also think, for me, um, it's always been useful to go, especially as more and more things become digital, to go back to the older um, interfaces um, mm-hmm. with Newspapers, for instance, um, I might get a hook. Um, part of what I did earlier in the process, when like I have one chapter on um, James McCune Smith and William J. Wilson, who wrote in Frederick Douglass's paper under the pseudonyms Ethiopian Communipa. Um, and very early in the process, I was just trying to figure out how many of these Ethiopian Communipa sketches there were out there in Frederick Douglass's paper and um, whether or not they jumped into other publications. And this was just as Accessible Archives was coming online. Um, And one of the things I started to do was just run searches through Accessible Archives for Ethiopian Communipol. And I was Doing that, but also trying to figure out what other resources were out there and realized that what part of what I was doing was reinventing a wheel that someone else had already done. Um, back in the day, John Blassingame um, edited a multi-volume index of anti-slavery newspaper writing. Uh, like before Accessible Archives, before Searchability, there is this index on the bottom shelf of the reference section of the library. I could go to that index, look up James McCune Smith, and get a rough estimate of how many things he published in Frederick Douglass's paper, The Liberator, The National Anti-Slavery Standard, etc. You could do the same thing with the Black abolitionist papers. And so what I had to learn was that my first impulse should not necessarily be the rough search through the digital interface. My first impulse might be looking at the index of the Black abolitionist papers to see what work has already been done, um, honoring honoring that and lessening some of the frazzled nature of just random searches. So that's one thing I had to do, get the filing system down, but also remember to go back to what's already been done before I um, turn myself into some sort of, errant Columbus figure discovering <laughs> stuff all over the place, right? Like Taylor Swift last um, night. And, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That,
0: that's a whole nother podcast series right there.
1: Yeah. Different format, different venue. There we go. Um, and then carving out writing time. One of the most difficult things I had to learn was developing a consistent writing structure. Um, for me, that means Carving out writing time that I treat as if it's a class or a standing meeting that I don't violate. Um, It means writing in sessions with built-in breaks rather than thinking I'm going to write for four hours straight. Um, And it means um, differentiating between kinds of writing. So going in with a game plan that I've already mapped out the day before, um, saying today I'm going to consolidate and do some preliminary close reading of things I've already found. Um, Or tomorrow, I'm going to focus on ways that I can sort of theorize what's happening. But making sure that before I jump to the theoretical piece, like making sure I understand what folks are trying to do in their writing on their own terms before I then go and um, try to um, carve something out of it.
0: I asked that in part, uh, you know, like I said before, we, we spoke, um, at, in Dr. Foreman's, uh, CCP class a few weeks ago. Um, but, but, you know, we have a lot of, you know, graduate students. We have a lot of folks, um, not, you know, um, you know, involved in, in the history, uh, uh process or the, the writing process, uh, rather and, and such. So I, I always find it, uh, really informative to to learn about how different scholars, you know, what's their process like because to me that then allows folks to better understand where folks are coming from in their texts. And they can kind of see not only the product, right? The book, but also learn a little bit about the actual people that are writing these texts. Because I think a lot of times like a book, it's, it's personal, right? You read the acknowledgements, you read, you know, the footnotes, that's a form you know that that citation uh, that that citation is love bit that you know folks like Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson down and Johns Hopkins talks about and, and such um, among other scholars and so um, I'm glad that I asked that question because you definitely provided a whole lot of um, uh, meat that folks hopefully will be able to chow down on as they're trying to finish the semester strong
1: um, as as well. And I'll say, don't. Uh, one of the things one of my um, advisors said, Teresa Godu, she said, don't suffer in silence. Like We um, put so much pressure on ourselves also dealing with um, forms of anxiety, just being black in this world, um, imposter syndrome, et cetera, um, and expectations um, that, at least for me, tend to suffer in silence without reaching out to people. And for me as a graduate student, that ended up in me hitting a wall and hitting it pretty hard. Um, And so Gadu said, don't suffer in silence. Um, One of my other advisors, Ifoma Wankwo, gifted me a subscription to basically a um, writing support group, um, which helped me develop healthy writing habits. Like your advisors, mentors are there to help support you if you're in a graduate program ideally you're there because the people in the program are investing in your life um and they're there to help
0: mhm and, and and with that too you know you spoke about your writing groups and and, and such too so um on that note can you talk to us a bit about when you're writing who are the people if if you're okay answering this, of course, but um, would you mind speaking a bit about who are the who are your interlocutors? As you're right, right? Because uh, you know you have your acknowledgments and such too. But can you can you speak to you know who are the people that you know are are you know reading your work um, to, to to really acknowledge them in this process too? Because from what it sounds like, you know you have a you have a team of folks who are who are very important. Uh, to your writing process.
1: Yeah, it's a team of folks. Um, A shout out to conferences and conferencing, because every time I go to a conference, it's like a collective of people feeding into um, a spirit. And I hesitate to name names, not because I don't want to name names of okay. honor people, but because I'm afraid of missing somebody.
0: Understood, understood.
1: So, I'll, I'll name a few. Um, the unit for criticism here um, does a manuscript workshop. And so some of the folks who participated in that, who read the manuscript um, before it went out to press, um, Susan Koshy, who's done a great job directing the unit, John Ernest, who you know, mm-hmm. um, and whose work both freaked me out because I read it at a time when I was trying to write on some of the texts he wrote about, but also helped model things for me. Um, Ivy Wilson, similarly, Justine Morrison, my hallmate and colleague here at Illinois, um, Carla Peterson, um, Gabrielle Foreman, um, Chris Freeberg, who I have to credit with helping develop the title for the book. Um, my colleague, Lindsay Rose Russell here. Um, and see, now I'm starting to get in trouble because I could just keep naming names and I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, my wife, Nafisa Thompson Spires. Uh, we talk things through a lot. Um, and some of it isn't necessarily people who read things per se, but people who I can just talk about stuff with. Um, listening to your podcast, for instance, hey, I like that. helps me think through. Ideas, even though I'm not necessarily in direct conversation with the people you bring on. Um, so, yeah,
0: and, and and for the listeners, hey, you know this this is is a great transition to, to just say, go buy the book, right? Go out, you know, support University of uh, Pennsylvania Press, Penn Press, because you know the practice of citizenship, black politics, and, and print culture in the early United States. Written by our friend of the podcast, Dr. Derek R. Spires, right? Go out and get that book because then, right, you'll be able to go read the acknowledgments to then be able to see the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say back on, you know, when he was in his NPR days, you know, shout out to him. And so, Yeah. yeah, because honestly, like when people think about like where my love of radio and podcasting really comes from, it's from talking about attributions my mother always picking us up you know around that like five you know o'clock hour and paul harvey's voice the rest of the story like literally that is a part of my life and so it made me really want to kind of like engage in radio because you know i talk all the time so might as well like you know make it work right um and uh and with that being said so in the in the short amount of time that we have left um can you talk to us a bit about um you know the book is out and you know it's out to the world and um you know and you you I saw you at a pre- recent conference here at the University of Delaware uh Black Bibliographia shout out to Dr. Laura Hilton um as well for that for creating that uh process along with um Dr. Uh, Jesse Peterson uh, Erickson, rather, rather, and uh, uh, Doctor Curtis Small, um, as well, and so shout out to them. But can you talk to us a bit about, um, you know, what's next if if you're if you're working on another project or or something else within CCP?
1: What's next? Uh, Part of what's next is the interest I have in seriality uh, and figuring out um, what why. Um, black writers turn to serial publication so often in the 19th century uh, in ways that I think differs from um, their white counterparts, but also thinking about how to understand their understandings of blackness. And I think seriality has become a key word for me. I tend to like, I tend to, like to think in terms of keywords. So right now, seriality is it. Um, the sketch is another one for me, trying to figure out what's going on with this genre Um, That's so capacious. And one of the people I'm interested in right now, aside from Frances Harper, is her sort of partner in crime, William Steele. Um, So thinking about the Underground Railroad as a curated document, how do we understand this really understudied, monumental, as in 800 plus pages, um, book published first in 1872?
0: That is that is tremendous. That is tremendous because I've I really I think maybe not first, but one of the early times that I got to learn about um, uh, uh, William Still was actually through uh, a, the- a theatrical performance um, during uh, WGN America's Underground um, because, you know, he was uh, a major uh, a part of, of the show. And, and, you know, that was, I think, back in uh, 2015, 2016. Shout out to you, John Legend. He used to come back on the television. Um, but that, that show provided me, you know, especially like, dang, this dude is really doing a whole lot of stuff. So it's really awesome to hear that you are uh, taking up um, uh, Harper more, but then also going and, and, and working within the still, you know, massive archive, right? Because, you know, effectively, you could say like, you know, that 800 pound, 800 pound, it probably... It weighs that much, but, but a yeah, hundred page document, you know, that's a big archival document, man. So, so it's definitely, you know, got to take your time with that. No.
1: Yeah. And it's not, and it's, it's an archival document, but it's also like a curated mm-hmm. thing, still organized it. He intersperses narrative. Um, he creates drama and tension in the way he collects the document, So, Understanding it as both an archive, but also in its own way, uh, like a show, right? Because each, each letter, each narrative sketch, each arc, it's its own um, plot line. And all of these plots sort of connect in ways because they all come through Steele's, um, through, they're all interlocutors with Steele, who's sort of at the center of this hub. Right, so how do we understand this as both archive and as creative work? Mm.
0: And one last question, if if I may, we got a couple more minutes left. I have one question because one of the things that uh, w- was the most fascinating about the talk that you gave in our class, um, it seems that the writing process and, and just the overall sense of your work that there's like a it feels like there's a spiritual connection that you kind of uh, have to the work. Um, and, and it's a, a it's, it's very fascinating. So if, could you put, uh, talk a bit about, you know, kind of how your writing is a bit, you know, th- th- that there's a, a spiritual element too, as, as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, full disclosure, I grew up Baptist. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and that is still with me in all sorts of ways. I'm just coming in terms with, um, and many of them good. I am. I identify as Christian. This is part of my makeup. It comes with its own ethics, um, and so some of it comes out in what I notice in the writing. I noticed reference to the parable of the good Samaritan in Jones and Allen's um, narrative because I grew up getting that story at least once a year in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. So how could I not recognize it? Um, but it also, I think, attunes me to. Um, some of the theologically informed ethics that all of these writers are working with because they're similarly coming out of um, churched in one way or another backgrounds and doing amazing things with this work. From Harper, who becomes Unitarian later in life, um, to Douglas, who has a vexed relationship with organized religion. Right? So that's one piece of it. Um, and like the neighborliness we started out the conversation with, it's also how I like to live my life. Um, Like doing unto others as I'd have them do unto me, seeing others as neighbors, approaching the stranger as a neighbor and making neighborhood. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is um, like these writers Doing this work feeds my spirit. It keeps me out of pessimism. It keeps me hopeful in ways that aren't pie-in-the-sky, sort of non-realist hope, but a kind of practical optimism. I think that's something that Harper is really great at. Um, And so the running joke between me and Nafisa, my partner, um, is that for everything that happens in the 21st century, I got a quote from someone In the 19th or 18th century, Um, whether it's James McKeon Smith, Douglas Harper, Mary Shag Carey, somebody, um, they've gone through it. They've seen it. And then the third thing I'd say is I feel a sense of Mm -hmm. responsibility to these people um, because your relationship to the work changes. Your relationship to thinking about what was possible back in the day changes the minute you Mm -hmm. remember that these are people. right? with feelings, with emotions, with drives, etc., cetera. Um, and I feel an immense sense of responsibility to get the story right and to get out of the way because what they're doing is so rich that part of what I wanted to do with the practice of citizenship is just say, here, look, see, pay attention. Um, they're still with us. They're still doing work. We just need to pay attention.
0: And for the last pretty much 48 minutes, we've had a captive audience that you've been able to talk to um, uh, about your work. And, um, you know, Dr. Spires, it has been a pleasure and an honor to to finally make this happen. Uh, Dr. Foreman, you know, when, when she was compiling the class and, and such, and we got a kind of insight about who's, uh, whose books we're going to be, um, wh- whose books we going to be reading for this semester. And I saw that your book was out, and then I also looked on, on the pen press website too. And I was like, I read the description. I was like, whoa, whoa, man. This day's about to be a thing about to be a banger, man. It's about to be a game changer out here. And um after talking for pretty much like the last 49 minutes and and the various other conversations over the course of the last five to six months, it has just been a pleasure and an honor. And um once again, folks, we have had the honor of having Dr. Derek r spires who is associate professor of english at the university of illinois urbana champaign who has been on to talk about his brand new published book by our friends at penn press shout out to them it's called the practice of citizenship black politics and print culture in the early united states and folks i am your host adam mcneil i love doing this i love talking to y'all next time it's gonna be another good one over and out